It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome back to part two with William Costello. We are talking about the sex recession that we're in, and this really is no laughing matter. As silly as that sounds, population collapse is something that could present a dire danger. Elon Musk has said that he thinks the greatest danger that we face is population collapse. It is certainly not overpopulation. And with William, we really dive into the sexual dynamics between men and women that's driving towards this radical change, what's going on, what we can do to address it. We get into incels, that whole movement, everything that's going on on the internet and how that's feeding into all this. So strap in everybody. This is a very, very interesting topic. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And now welcome back to William Costello. I'm your host, Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Okay, so let's talk about some of the mismatch. Uh, I'm very grateful that I dodged the Tinder bullet Mm -hmm. um, because I would have used the life out of that. Yeah. Uh, And when I was in my early 20s, while I was very, um, I I am a big believer in love. Mm -hmm. But when I met my wife, I didn't think I was going to ever get married. Mm -hmm. I was very much on the train of like, cool, let's have a lot of short-term partners. Now that I understand women, I understand the game. I know how to get laid. I want to get laid as much as I can. Yes. Bad news is I'm really bad at not catching feels when I meet somebody extraordinary. Okay. Uh, and so fell, end up falling head over heels. But when you look at the graph that shows sexlessness, and I know mm. that, that maybe that's on the reverse and it seems like mm. something interesting is happening there. And I'm not sure I fully understand, even though mm. we talked about it at the beginning, but anyway, on, on the graph, I think this same thing leading up to 2018, and then mm-hmm. I need to update my data, but you can see where Tinder hits mm-hmm. and then sexlessness goes up mm-hmm. because I'm guessing we're getting into the top percentage of men now monopolize. And so you get a huge number of guys that are having no sex and a small yes. number of guys that are having a ton of sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels like a mismatch to me. Yeah. Um, one, I'd love to get your take on that, but are there others? Yeah, certainly. And like that could be seen as mismatch or almost a return to this effective polygyny. So if I've talked earlier about how we have this ancestral history of uh, ex- exactly that, that polygyny. And if you're to look at that data of the top 20% and the top 5% of men really having a lot of sexual partners, but a lot of other men appearing to be disenfranchised, that does look like an effective polygyny. Um, so it could be a return rather than a mismatch. But yeah, it's facilitated by the online dating. Uh, Other aspects of mismatch, huge one is the control over our birth control. The pill is probably the most paradigm shifting uh, technology for our mating psychology or uh, to impact our mating. How's that not only good? Because if we think back to those statistics about women, the involuntary childless women, 80% of childless women were involuntarily so. That's uh, 
a massively high number. So what must be happening for a lot of them, and I'd refer your viewers to the documentary called Birth Gap by Stephen Shaw. It's fantastic, uh, explores the population crisis. And he talks to women who report over and over again that they just simply left it too late to find a partner. Mm. And when you talk about this idea of women leaving it too late, you're not just talking about their fertility, their biological fertility. It just, you don't find a partner find a partner you're happy with, convince them to marry you. It doesn't all wrap itself up in a neat little bow in a handful of years if you start trying only at the age of 30. It's like a really, really squeezed time window that you're imposing on yourself. So that's, um, it, for many of those women, I would wager it's inadvertent. You know, they didn't uh, see it panning out that way and they just left it too late or couldn't find the right partner. So that's evolutionary novel. Dating apps are a huge one. They expose us to more potential mates in a lifetime or in a few minutes than we would be exposed to in a lifetime throughout our ancestral history. Now, the way that works in so many different ways, one could be romantic rejection. So I'm asked all the time, I I research incels. And one thing people say to me all the time is, why do they care about the rejection so much? Why not just go on? Uh, There's plenty more fish in the sea. And ultra-rationalist, logical person could say, yes, that's right, there are plenty of more fish in the sea, just move on. But if you think about what rejection meant for most of our ancestral history, it was really costly, because there was only a couple of dozen potential mates that you might meet in your lifetime, they all kind of knew each other, so if they saw you getting rejected, your reputation takes a spike, so we're, you know, we're designed to be very anxious. It's meant to be very anxiety inducing to engage in the mating market because it going wrong could be very costly. So if we also think about dating apps, uh, and even just in terms of big cities and university settings, exposing us to so many potential mates messes with our commitment uh, devices. So why would we be inclined to commit to one partner when we're getting the impression that there is a limitless supply of other potential mates around. And we've got this FOMO of uh, fear of missing out. Is there someone better? Should I keep swiping? Then you got on top of that, just the business model of the dating apps is to design to keep you in the dating room, in the swiping room, to keep you single. Why would their business model be anything else? That's you gnarly. Know, you know, it's gnarly and they, they, they talk about, oh, designed to be deleted. But, you know, if you really think about it, they're, they want swipers. They want people playing the dating game and they kind of even transparently move to this some of their advertisement campaigns are like it's great to be single you know single and swiping that's good for them you know woof mm, I know that's uh, yeah that that one i had not thought of i should have that's very self-evident mm-hmm. as you get into it um oof. okay so we have these incredible mismatches mm-hmm. um How do we, like, when you think about, so this is something I have to think about a lot. So we're creating a metaverse. I Mm -hmm. hate calling it that, but that'll get you close enough. Uh, And so I have to think about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Like this, people are now going to be able to build their identity. Um, They're detached from the real world. They are um, able to get some of the faux cues and things that they might have to deal with in uh, sorry, they're getting faux cues of fitness that if they were in the real world, they would not be able to mistake. And mm-hmm. so one of those would be like pornography, um, where you're getting some sort of subconscious cue that everything is well. Um, where does porn sit in your stack of problems? 
Yeah, that's one idea that it could be this kind of pseudo relationships. Uh, in terms of porn, it's there's two ways of looking at it. So the people who use porn, uh, most, most men are quite sexually active men who also simultaneously want to go out mate seeking too. Um, but we have data on that. We yeah, know. they're, they're still—they're still. They're still uh, it doesn't seem to interfere with their mate seeking. Now, I'm a bit less optimistic about virtual reality, and as that gets more sophisticated and more embodied cognition of will people, and it becomes more costly to engage in the real mating market, will men just increasingly retreat? Uh, so it doesn't appear to be that it's just pornography per se, because that gets tied up with, oh, well, very sexually unrestricted men use most pornography. But the idea of retreating into virtual worlds, virtual status games like video games and just online on the internet instead of mate-seeking, that seems to have a bit more traction, I think. But just pornography on its own gets a bit caught up with, yes, but the problem is that also the most sexually active, sexually people with the highest sexual desires use a lot of porn too. So it, it kind of loses that uh, dulling effect. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Mm. I'm not yet clear if people that are very unsuccessful, mm -hmm. are they also using porn? Yeah, I would say that they are uh, as like a coping kind of mechanism. Um, but it's not clear to me that just stopping porn in isolation would encourage the mate seeking. Hmm. It's uh Oh, yeah. That is surprising to mm. me. So I don't know if there's data or if that's your hunch, but uh, so what you're putting forth is that um, if I'm not masturbating, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean, so I, I'm having pent up desire. That doesn't mean that I will go seek a natural human relationship mm -hmm. to sort that out. Yeah. And that's the surprising thing. We're seeing this, this data on uh, these data on men just not being motivated to seek mates. And it just could be. What the fuck? Uh, yeah. Right. So it's you're, you're tipping over. Uh, I'm realizing now I had a base assumption mm -hmm. that was, uh, these guys are all masturbating furiously and that is what placates them enough to not go out. Um, are you saying that's not true? So I, these guys have, do they have low? So, okay, let's get into incels. Do incels have, as, as just an extreme yeah. sort of end of this, just so we can cut to the chase. Mm -hmm. uh, for people that don't know, incel, involuntary, celibate, they want a mm -hmm. partner, but they believe, rightly or wrongly, that they cannot get a partner. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my pieces of advice to them would be stop masturbating because mm -hmm. that's going to apply massive amounts of biological pressure on you to go out. Yes. So now I need you to help me understand how that is not yeah. true. Incels are a tricky one. Uh, when we measured them on porn use against our non-incel single men, it was kind of virtually the same. So it's very hard to kind of find control groups for porn users because mm -hmm. everyone, every young man is pretty much using porn. It's hard to do those studies. But I just wrote a recent article um, for Aporia called The Allure of Inceldom, Why Incels Resist Ascension. And a lot of incels, um, you might, it's intuitive to think, oh yes, they really want a mate, they really want a partner and they'd do anything to go out and get it. But that's not the case. And all sorts of people talk about how incels are simply aiming too high. They need to lower their standards. But my um, idea is they're actually not aiming at all. And there's actually unique appeal 
to the incel identity that gets them hunkered down into that life and that victimhood mentality rather than engaging with the anxiety-inducing mating market. So to be romantically successful, you need to go through a lot of anxiety. You need mm-hmm. to go out, put yourself out there, get rejected a lot, uh, get your heart broken, all those Is things. Is there any data on people taking anti-anxiety medication and... And mate-seeking. Success, mm. yeah. I, I'm not familiar there, but we have data certainly that anxiety levels are very, very high among incels uh, and increasingly just among young men and women. Uh, more anxiety everywhere we look. Um, but yeah, and that could be feeding into this reluctance to engage in the mating market, which is, like we say, one of the most anxiety-inducing things you can do. It's uh, it's scary to put yourself out there. And the most success, successful uh, romantic people are ones who are able to take rejection, to go mm. through it. And you could say to incels, I promise you it's worth it. It's worth it to go through the other side, go through all the rejection. But that has become less obvious to me uh, for incels as, as I've well, gone well, well. on. So it's not obvious that going through the rejection will yield anything oh, or that getting in a relationship is worth the anxiety? I think I think it's worth it, me personally, but it's it's not very easy for me to say to every incel who has faced just a lifetime of being rejected to say, yes, it's worth it. Keep rolling the dice. Keep rolling the dice. It might Because they may actually not end up with a partner? It, they, it, or the cost may come, it may be so anxiety inducing to them that it's, uh, who am I to say, push yourself through that pain, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I don't have the neuron for who am I to say, right, which yeah. my audience either finds very entertaining or I'm sure in the comments is shut the fuck up. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have that neuron. So uh, who am I to say? Yeah, I, I am going to say this because I really want to see people thrive. Mm-hmm. And I am a big believer that the only difference between me and the level of success that I've had, whether it's in it's my relationships or money, no, 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 yeah. is that um, I really believe that you can get better mm-hmm. and that at anything and that on the other side of in in the dating market is um you nothing will ever give you more not money not success mm-hmm. not accolades nothing than sharing your life with somebody yes. that that you you're able to have a a very high thriving relationship mm-hmm. with because yes, you could be in a marriage with somebody and sharing your life with somebody you you hate, yeah. and that would be a nightmare. I used I literally used to have a recurring nightmare about being in a loveless marriage. So I get that side. Yeah. So I I want to um the the thing that I'm grappling with in what you're saying is that if I knew mm-hmm. that they could have a relationship on the other side of that, I'd be like, bro, it is worth it. Yes. Yeah, like just from a biological standpoint, I'm guaranteeing you that it's worth it because yes. the the pair bonding. Um, and look, there mm-hmm. are realities to be faced about how many receptors do you have for vasopressin mm-hmm. and oxytocin? If you don't have enough, then you, you just, mm. you may not experience the kind of thing that I experienced. But if you have a sufficient level of that, which I will just assume most people do, nothing will give you yeah. more ever than being somebody's number one and, and sharing that life together. Yeah. What scares me is that some of these guys may be for real, for real mm-hmm. of such low mate value that you aren't going to end up with somebody on the other side of that. And so if you're saying that, that Mm -hmm. there are some people that don't meet what I'll call minimum requirements, Mm -hmm. you, this really does suck. And you, you are going to have to find another path to fulfillment. But my thing is, I think most people miss understand where they fall on that spectrum. Yeah. I I agree with what you're saying. So let me rephrase what I, I was trying to say is, 
it, yes, I think it's worth it. And I think what's on the other side is flourishment, uh, or flourishing and fulfillment uh, that is worth all that pain. But I guess what I was trying to say when I said, oh, who am I to say, is that I was trying to understand the mindset of why that wouldn't be obvious to someone, why that wouldn't be obvious to an incel. And I began to realize that incels get a lot out of their social identity uh, of the victimhood identity, the common mm. enemy of women all suck and Chad sucks. Uh, they get a rich lexicon of humorous trolling terminology. They have their sense of fraternity with their other fellow incels, a black and white rubric through which to view the world. They actually get a lot out of that identity that I'm beginning to see um, compared with engaging in an anxiety-inducing mating market that, like you said, may not actually yield some positive results at all. We think it would, and it's intuitive to think, oh yeah, just roll the dice enough times and just from a sheer numbers thing, that's probably right. But it may be so costly to do that uh, that it, they just say it's not worth all that pain to go through. Um, what's another bleak uh, idea is that enga- uh, encouraging incels to re-engage with the mating market, these socially anxious young men who aren't very experienced with women, very insecure, it it, we might be careful what we wish for if they find girlfriends because people always talk about how dangerous these sexless young men are, these incels are so dangerous. But what is really dangerous is an insecure, jealous boyfriend. That They engage in way more intimate partner violence and things like that than any sexless young man. So that's a bit of a, a dark kind of truth to reckon with as well, is that this might be no picnic. And like we talked about earlier, the engaging with the mating market it's a baptism of fire. There's no training ground for it. There's just go out there into the world, make a bunch of mistakes, learn on your feet. Um, so yeah, so I guess what I was trying to say is rather than who am I to say is it worth it, is that I can understand why an individual incel might elect to hunker down into victimhood identity and online worlds rather than engaging with the mating market they don't have much faith in. That's what I mean, I think. Whoa, that was... <laughs> dark i know dark yeah. uh i love it because i think people have to face whatever is true mm-hmm. okay so that brought up a couple things for me okay. one of them is frame of reference mm-hmm. so i am obsessed with the idea of frame of reference so we all believe certain things about ourselves and the world and that is your frame of reference mm-hmm. now anybody that thinks that their frame of reference just reflects objective reality that person is a danger to themselves and others mm-hmm. and I really, really, really want people to distrust their emotions. Mm. And I mean, that was so much aggression, man. I want people to distrust their emotions. Nobody distrusts their emotions more than me. Mm. And so I'm saying that my success is because I distrust my emotions. So I learned a long time ago that Mm. I was only going to allow myself to do and believe that which moved me towards my goals. And so if my goal is to find love, et cetera, et cetera, then I can't allow myself to believe that I'm unlovable, that Mm -hmm. I'm so low on the totem pole, nobody could ever find me um, attractive, worth being partnered with. While I believe that we're having a biological experience, while I believe that, you know, uh, mate preferences and all that stuff, like there, there is a lot of constraints, Mm -hmm. but I think there's also some malleability and I would be looking at what is everything that I can tweak? What are the things that I can max out on? What are the things I have to let go of? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I mean, look, if, if I, I am perfectly happy and I've seen this countless times Mm -hmm. where you get a really short guy with a super tall woman word, I'm all for it. I'm just saying like, I want people to 
distrust that you don't think that you could be of value. There are ways that you could look at different pools of people that are going to find you attractive. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that would be a wise way to approach that problem, mm-hmm. but you have to pierce people's frame of reference. If mm-hmm. they are just convinced that they are unlovable, then yes. that's the problem. The problem isn't, uh, that you can't actually find somebody. The problem is you believe you can't find somebody and now you're not doing any of the things you would need to do to get yeah. on the other side of that. Yeah, you touched on a lot of areas of incel typical psychology there actually. Um, so one is that they have a very strong external locus of control. They don't believe they can affect change in their own life at all. It's just things happen to them. The, it's outside forces, whether it's dating apps, feminism, whatever it is, I'm too short. External world has made it so that they're going to be a victim. So that's one thing. So trying to, when we think about maybe any interventions, cultivating that internal locus of control, that there's something you could do to affect change in your own life, uh, that's very important. But incels lack that a lot. They do have a terminology for what you described of like that self-development of maxing. Everything is looks maxing. uh, What is it? Jester maxing to be very funny. Everything maxing, right? So that's one kind of... Uh, way some incels look at it and they have a very bleak terminology for the levels at which you can be an incel so you can be at the stage of hope cope or rope so hope describes feeling like oh there's still hope out there i could maybe engage in looks maxing i'll go to the gym i'll become uh, self-developed i'll read a lot of books Mm -hmm. hoping some of them will say it's uh, uh, delusional hope but to be romantically successful, you need to be some have some level of self-delusion too. Yes. Uh, so we talk about it in, in terms of mating intelligence, which describes mating relevant other deception, but also mating relevant self-deception. To not pay attention to the rejection so much and to just keep looking out for the green flags. Only uh, do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. Right. So that's an important part of mating intelligence. Uh, so that's hope that incels might engage in the, the looks maxing. Then there's cope, which is, uh, you know, problematic coping mechanisms like drug taking, pornography use, drugs. Uh, and we have evidence that incels engage in a lot of problematic um, coping mechanisms. And then finally, the most bleak of all is the idea of rope. Uh, which is suicide as an outlet. And uh, some of our data shows that suicidality is just so high among incels that it's really it's really bleak to look at that data because I'm asked all the time about incels from an extremism point of view. And it's my opinion following the data that extreme inceldom more typically looks like suicide rather than uh, an act of violence towards others. And even the acts of violence towards others have been suicide by cop mm. or something like this. It's an act of self-destruction. Uh, so yeah, so incels do have this uh, external locus of control. They don't believe they can affect change. They encourage each other to lay down and rot. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty bleak uh, gallows humor type language they have. So lay down and rot and take the black pill, which I'm I'm sure you've heard of the black pill. Yes. It's a derivative of the red pill from the movie The Matrix and describes a particularly bleak truth for incels to swallow, the belief that there's nothing they could do to affect change. Um, So yeah, so that's where they're kind of stuck. And even in my interviews with incels, when I talk to them, the last question I ask in every interview is, how would you no longer, how would you know you're no longer an incel? And they talk about it, invariably, they all talk about it like, as if it's like alcoholism, that they could relapse. 
And I say, would you, how would you know you're no longer an incel? Would you need to get one girlfriend, two girlfriends, have sex one time? What would have to happen? And they talk about it like, oh, no matter what, you could, it could go back, you could go back. And, you know, you get the sense that there's almost nothing is ever good enough for them in some, to some degree. So they talk about having missed out irretrievably on developmental experiences like young romantic love, early 20s or late teens. There was something so pure about that type of romantic love. Uh, that I'll never have access to again. Or women, once they've had Chad, they're always going to want him in a way that they'll never want you, even if you do get to marry her. And it's like, at what stage does it become, (laughs) oh, mate, like, come on, (laughs) what will ever be good enough for you? One example I have is, I put up some statistic about how difficult short men find it on the mating market and Tons of data out out there on that, unfortunately. Um, but one guy waded into my Twitter comments and said, I'm five foot two. I'm married with kids. And a load of incels just piled into the comments saying, oh, your wife is probably cucking you and using you for your resources. Jeez, and it's like, yes. this guy is married with kids. It, and that's not good enough for you. You know, it's like, it, it's just hunkered down into this victim mentality all the time, all the way down. Yeah, frame of reference. Exactly. Frame of reference. Mm-hmm. When you can't pierce somebody's frame of reference, like you're really in trouble. Uh, and, But I think people struggle to understand incels' frame of reference of really seeing the world and believing that they never stand a chance. That's the genuine belief of many incels. It's not just this LARP. And uh, obviously they hunker down into that victimhood identity, but they do, you know, if you and all your social networks were reinforcing this belief. And you were, it's what we call self-verification theory. So whether you see a cat or a lion in the mirror, you tend to want to surround yourself with people who see the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. actually frightening and more disturbing to have someone not see you the way you see yourself. Uh, So incels actually prefer if you say to them, yes, you really would struggle on the mating market. And the worst thing you could say is, oh, you could do better. Come on, you could develop yourself. You could find a girlfriend. Surely there's still hope. They don't like that at all. Because the little bit of hope is more scary to them than uh, no hope. No hope means you don't have to try. You never stood a chance. It was over. It's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. Uh, You're just lost out on the genetic lottery, whatever it is. But at least the game is over. You don't have to go through the anxiety of trying And that's why they're so resistant to other incels ascending. So ascending is the word they have for when an incel is no longer an incel. Um, And they're very resistant to this idea because it dispels their idea that they never stood a chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they'll even kick an incel out of the forums if he's uh, trying to find romantic success. Or they'll call him a fake cell if he does. So it's this coalitional psychology of forming a group that's very valuable. We're social creatures. That is a very valuable evolved need too. Um, you know, there there would have to trade all of that coalitional psychology off in order to take their place in a mating market that, like you said, they're not confident they're going to do well in. They're exhausted with it. They're anxiety induced with it. And it's expensive. And they're invariably very poor. They're highly likely to be neat, not engaged in employment and uh, education or training. And, you know, if we talked about the cost of dating, uh, if they don't have the money, you know, and uh, I don't want to use the term, who am I to insist? But uh, you can understand how they would come to the conclusion, 
I'm out. I'm no longer trying. And it, it must be that they're no longer trying because it's objectively impossible to prove someone is in, like, uh, incapable of forming romantic relationships. Mm. That's objectively impossible to prove. But so that means it must be embraced. The identity must be embraced by the individual. But uh, having researched it, I can kind of I have a, a bit more sympathy or kind of understanding of how they would arrive at that conclusion and the incentive structure to stay in that identity rather than compete in the mating market. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 
thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, identity. That mm-hmm. That is the other thing that this brings up for me. It Again, just you can't allow yourself, if you want to flourish, remember my North Star, mm-hmm. if you want to flourish, if you want to find fulfillment, you cannot allow yourself to take on an identity that holds you back, slows you down, whatever. Yes. Um, even if you're going to remove yourself from the dating market and say, you know, that's not a game that I want to play. Like even that, I would rather see people go, you know what? Like, uh, I don't find it worth the, the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so not that I couldn't do it. It's that the amount of anxiety that I would have to face given my genetic hand, whatever, I'm not interested in playing it. Okay, cool. Like Mm -hmm. at least now you're closer to the truth. Meaning when I think about truth, I think we are all prediction machines. Mm -hmm. And the closer you get to the truth, the more able you are to accurately predict the outcome of your behaviors. So if you're saying, look, it is true for me to go confront that. It's a ton of anxiety for me to try to get better. You know, I'm five, two, mm-hmm. uh, my IQ's 89, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you've got all these things working against you. All right. The amount of anxiety that I would have to go through in order to maximize things that are going to matter. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just far too exhausting. Okay. At least yeah. you're not adding a layer of falsity to all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. We're closer. Now you can find mm-hmm. a path to fulfillment in a different direction. Yeah. Like, Hey, I'm taking that one off the table because the anxiety is too high, but I know yeah. I need to find a path to fulfillment. So mm-hmm. what, what is that going to be? What, what incels might say in response to that is that's exactly what I'm doing. And I'm just uh, commiserating with my fellow incels about that predicament. And why shouldn't I do that? Don't we all deserve social allies, you know, and they do. So the loneliness is off the charts too. And it's interesting when we looked at our data. Wait, wait, wait. I don't want that to be a rhetorical question. So why, why should I not do that? My first question to them is going to be, what is your North Star? Mm -hmm. If your North Star is to have other people reinforce Mm -hmm. your negative view of yourself, then you're doing the right thing. Yes. But I need to hear you say, my North Star is not human flourishing. It Mm -hmm. is not fulfillment. It is not having contributed anything meaningfully to this world. It is, I want to optimize for other people telling me that I'm as big of a loser as I think I am. Cool. Now I'm done. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. Okay, cool. You, you've been honest about what your North Star is. I don't think it's neurochemically advantageous, mm-hmm. but you're not lying to yourself. So I don't have any, like, there's nowhere for me to go. Okay, yeah. cool. So you've optimized for that. I think that is exactly what a lot of incels would say is that's where I'm at. That's uh, all I think I can get out of life. Uh, I don't now think I can now get. they've started bullshitting. Yeah. The second they say it's all I think I can get, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. that's your problem. Mm-hmm. If you're being honest that that's what you're optimizing for, mm-hmm. cool. The second you bullshit and say, I, I, I am like in this small group of people that cannot get better at anything that would lead to fulfillment. Yeah. I'm perfectly fine with you taking off the table that I'm not going to pursue mating, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. Full acknowledgement of how devastating that is. But I'm just saying, don't optimize it. If that really is off the table, let's say that you're horribly scarred over uh, 95% of your body and your, per- your penis was burned off. Yeah. Cool. 
Mating is out for you. Get mm -hmm. it. I'm not even going to waste time on that. But I would not spend time thinking to yourself that you cannot optimize for fulfillment. Mm -hmm. You still don't need to optimize for having people tell you all day that it really is as bad as you think. Don't optimize for that. Yeah. I get it. Why? Because Tom Bilyeu's North Star is human flourishing. As yes. far as I can tell, evolution has given you the only recipe that's ever going to matter, mm -hmm. which is that you have to work really hard to gain a set of skills that matter not only to you, but to the group. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, mating is a rad way to be on that path yes. and to matter and to fight and and do things for this other, this a much smaller microcosm of your, mm -hmm. your significant other and your kids, but it's still the same idea. I'm contributing to this micro group. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna have to pick a different micro group to go contribute to. I'm very sad that yeah. you didn't get the most obvious one that nature gives us, which is the family microcosm, yes. but it didn't. So anyway, I'm just saying that the second they say, oh, I couldn't mm -hmm. optimize for something else. I can't get better at anything. Mm -hmm. False. Yeah. Yeah. I think I tend to personally kind of agree with you, but I'm glad to hear you not demean how painful it is to, to lose out on feeling like you can even participate in that mating arena. Because one thing that infuriates me when a lay listener or someone who doesn't know much about this topic at all starts talking about incels and they say something like, why do they care so much about mating? And I'm like, well, crazy. because we're all the result of an unbroken chain of ancestors who've solved that problem for long enough to reproduce. It's uh, very important. We build billion dollar industries around it in the form of dating apps, cosmetic surgery. It's big business. It's what people care about. Uh, and it is the route to a lot of human flourishing. So it really bugs me when people say, why don't they just simply care about other things? And it's like, it's not that easy. Um, but yeah, I think I tend to agree with you. And in our paper, we talk about the two routes to responding to inceldom. So you can engage with the mating market again, and we can do maybe interventions to try and help incels re-engage with the mating market. But recognizing that that, not might, that might not be the route that's best for every incel at that given time, maybe eventually. But as an alternative to that, you have to direct them towards better coping patterns or better forms of human flourishing um, without the mating market, which is a hard sell, but not impossible. Like you say, you need to find a different North Star or find a different uh, vision for human flourishing. Mm. But um, but yeah, it just bugs me when people kind of demean um, that psychic pain when it's like, oh yeah, oh, you can't get a mate. Why don't you simply care about other things? It's like, mm. that's hard. Well, so the, the great irony is you're 100% correct mm. about the just the devastating reality that would be mm -hmm. uh, this thing is off the table that evolution is giving me a screaming desire mm -hmm. for. Uh, and so I'm going to have to find a way to shut that off, mm -hmm. not shut it off, but mm -hmm. I'm going to have to find a way to make other things matter more. But I can think of no tragedy greater than not trying mm -hmm. like, and, and this goes back to my, once, once we develop this sort mm -hmm. of cynical self-awareness, hope, cope, rope, is already run in the opposite direction. Like you, yeah. even having that horrendously oversimplified thing that gives you a cool linguistic thing to hold on to, and it's clever and it's funny yeah. and gallows humor and all that, I get mm -hmm. it. But like, I would personally, like, so in my marriage, we don't say the word divorce. We call mm -hmm. it the D word. Okay. And the reason we do that is we just have to reinforce in each other that that just isn't an option. It's mm -hmm. not a path that we take. And so we take that off the table. And so we address issues. If you go, cool. I'll do hope. I'll do cope. I don't do rope. Like rope is mm -hmm. off the table for me. And so it's like, okay, once cope starts slipping, if rope isn't an option, then it's like, what are you going to do? What's yeah. the path around this? My wife and I play this game in our relationship, in our business, everything. 
No bullshit. What would it take? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you start saying, I am going to find a path to this thing. Now, I may not be willing to do it, but it puts you in a solution-oriented mindset. Yes. to that end, I want to give you a question. I beg of you to ask this okay. of of everybody in your incel um, mm-hmm. study. Would your emotional agony be diminished if you had an AI robot that felt like a real person in every way, mm-hmm. could pass the Turing test, meaning having a conversation with them about the deepest, most intimate parts of your life is mm-hmm. indistinguishable from somebody else, but you knew that that robot was programmed to preferentially find you mm-hmm. attractive, even if you're burned to a crisp, uh, penis mm-hmm. got burned off, whatever. But that robot just loves you mm-hmm. by programming. Are you good with it? Or do you still need to think of yourself as a loser? I think that what you described uh, would scratch one itch for incels, the kind of the loneliness need the sexual need potentially as well uh, but it wouldn't scratch the feeling like a loser itch because there's no status afforded to men who have the best artificially intelligent girlfriend there's no status afforded to that um so it'll scratch one itch for incels but it won't scratch the other um it reminds me of that movie her have you seen that one mm-hmm. with the, the ai girlfriend and it's just devastating to think, but that could be a dystopian kind of future. But it's devastating for what reason? Why is her the movie? Mm-hmm. For those that haven't seen it, maybe your answer will explain. Uh, but why is her devastating? Because for me, it's only devastating for one reason. Yeah, and it, it just it reminds me. A lot of people say, "Why can't incels just use sex workers?" There's plenty of sex workers out there. But again, it'll only scratch that one itch. It won't scratch the itch of being sexually selected. Being sexually selected means you're seen as high status. You're, how do you describe it? Um, you've done, you've uh, shown competence in your arena. Uh, you've shown value. You've created something. Uh, you've been chosen. And achieving romantic success is tied up with status for men uh, in a in a loop. Uh, and that's just not going to be um, achievable by getting the best AI girlfriend. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So being selected as a proxy for I'm impressing other people just in general that I'm high status. Yeah, there's an interesting, uh, I don't know if you're familiar Ouch. with Ayla on, on Twitter. She's like this kind of uh, public intellectual runs these massive surveys of like no. sex surveys with 50,000 Twitter respondents. Um, but she has this kind of pet theory. I think it's Ayla I heard it from. If it's not, uh, I heard it somewhere else. Um, that a lot of men aren't, don't crave having sex with really attractive women all that much, but they love the status it kind of affords them. The actual sex that could kind of go without, they'd be happy having sex with their looks match more. Um, but the actual status that comes with being seen as having been able to attract an attractive woman is so seductive. I mm. think there's something to that. that not uh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> not for me. Because I'm super rich. So like I could in theory, get very attractive women just based on Mm -hmm. that status alone. And man, in my narrow little piece of the universe, I'm also well-known. So it's like recognizable to a narrow band of humanity and very wealthy. Uh, That is not Mm -hmm. interesting to me at all. Mm. Um, 
for insecurity reasons. Hmm. So it's like, I would much rather be with somebody I think is in my sexual market value on a lot of different dimensions, including age. Hmm. If I'm honest, like the Leonardo DiCaprio thing, I'm like, bro, do you just look way better naked than I do? Which I doubt. (laughs) Uh, What the fuck? Like I want to be, and my wife, God bless her cotton socks is definitely in better shape than I am. Hmm. Uh, But there's, it's a pretty narrow band. Like I wouldn't let myself Mm. go farther because then I would feel like out of her league. That would just, I would not like that feeling at all. So again, not, uh, that doesn't Mm. resonate with me, not because I think I'm cool. The exact opposite. I have insecurities around it. And just the thought of like being with a 20 something, no way, no way. Like that's crazy (laughs) town. Even though like from a porn perspective, word, yeah. but like from a reality perspective, no thanks. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because it, it obviously comes through quite strongly how much you admire and love your wife, but I'm looking forward to hearing about how you make that one sell tonight when you tell her about it. Well, I'm, I'd rather not. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. My wife, dude, when I say that we have talked about everything, yeah, mm-hmm. if my wife were in her 20s, that would not, I thoroughly enjoyed my wife in her twenties mm-hmm. when I was in my twenties too. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'm very glad that we are both yeah. aging, even though I'm held to a different standard. That's still, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I feel like whatever that thing is that lets old guys be with super young women mm-hmm. be with, I get the, find them attractive. Yeah. I find them attractive, mm-hmm. but be with mm, triggers. That's a very uh, mature way of looking at it. It's very refreshing to hear. But uh, yeah, my supervisor describes it as men are cursed as they get older to be attracted to women that are never going to desire them. Yeah. So it's like, uh, oh man, when I think about the most brutal, and this will be interesting saying to if we have any incels listening now, but the they say mm-hmm. that the worst moment for a man, and this resonates with me, is the moment that a woman finds you harmless. Mm, It's like, oh God. Like I would rather be intimidating than harmless. Mm, Like that's brutal. Yeah. A brutal black pill, as the incels would say. (laughs) Yeah, that that one is rough. Okay, so you, so going back to her, Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that I found that movie rough is that in the end, he gets rejected even by the AI, who's just like, look, humans are just too boring. Uh, we can all think it like so much faster and talk to so many more people at one time. We're just gonna peace out. So yeah. that's why that's rough. But I, when I think about AI, and look, I, I'm paranoid. I don't think AI is some utopia. I don't mm-hmm. think there are utopias. I think there are only trade-offs. But if I were an incel, I'd be like, AI, mm-hmm. oh word, sex robots, word. Yeah. And I would be, I would be at least like, it doesn't scratch all the itch. Yeah. I hear you. But having some of the itch scratch, like, look, my dog is not a child. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of that. I think it's as cringe when people like dog post, mom. yeah, like my wife does it. <laughs> I even think of myself, like, my wife will refer to me in front of our dog as dad. I've, so look, I buy into it, like, I get it. Um, I just wouldn't post about it, but, uh, it does scratch part of that itch Mm -hmm. and it, it does it enough that I'm like, this is actually a part of my strategy in terms of not having kids is having a pet and being like, Hey, this is a thing. And also this is really controversial. I'm surprised at how negatively people respond to this. I'm not necessarily proud of the following statement, but it's real, man. It represents a real thought that I have. When AI kids become a thing, 
and you can speed up their mm. development. Because the reason I don't want to have kids is I can't fathom mm. like 20 plus years, my wife becoming my number two or number three or number four, depending mm. on how many kids we have. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, that didn't strike me as a good idea for my marriage. So, but if I could have a kid where I'm like the first two years, I want to go by over a weekend mm. because this is a non-biological entity. Yes. I can speed up its development as much as I want. Uh, so for a weekend, we'll have a, a zero to two year old. Fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I want the terrible twos. You know, maybe we spend a week with that just to feel like we earned it. Right. Uh, then three to seven, maybe I want to slow that down. Cause those are some pretty magical years mm-hmm. where they want to be around you. They've got a real personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the teenage years, Oh God, I can't even deal with that. So again, we reduce the entire teenage band to a week or two weeks or, you know, however much yeah. suffering we want to do. Uh, and then when they hit, you know, 25 and they're like, oh, my parents aren't as dumb as I thought. We slow that back down, mm-hmm. right? So I could see that being a part of my strategy, mm. if I'm really honest, uh, especially if they're in learning mode. And so they really start to reflect your values and stuff. So you're like, oh my God, like this is so cool to see my ideas reflected yeah. like in a quote unquote living thing. So anyway, I I would, man, I just cannot, because of my frame of reference, I cannot adopt mm-hmm. the lay down and rot mentality mm-hmm. and just feel like there are a lot of paths yeah. to fulfillment, not necessarily getting laid. Yeah. So I hear you yeah. about they're still not being sexually selected. Yeah. There are other paths. I, I like uh, your kind of white pill uh, pushback against the dystopia that this technological future might bring and uh, Chris Williamson brought me on to talk about this very thing with him we talked about this dystopian future of AI girlfriends and things like that and one white pill that we thought about might be that incels or uh, sexless young men might use a very sophisticated artificially intelligent girlfriend yes they might retreat from the mating market altogether and you know this ai girlfriend might leap out of the uncanny valley and even surpass a flesh and blood girlfriend but it wouldn't come with the status so what they might do instead is use this ai girlfriend as a training ground i've said a few times on the podcast now there's no training ground for the mating market except if you actually have a virtual reality ai uh, artificially intelligent girlfriend that you can practice on and improve your prospects for the real world mating market that would come with status. So maybe, and now the pushback I get on that is people say, oh, well, yeah, people don't use pornography to learn about how to be good lovers in bed, do they? And it's like, no, that's not true. But this isn't quite the same thing. It's a, it's a little bit different, uh, I like to think. But yeah, the the future of, I didn't even think about the idea of artificially intelligent kids and why that might be preferable, especially if you talk about when they begin to mirror you and you see yourself in them uh, because all our data show that parents invest more heavily in kids that look and behave like them like to a massive degree so that would be uh, the ai might be able to parasitize uh, that uh, parenting uh, mechanism for a lot of people and there could be advantages to it above and beyond the investment in an actual offspring yeah, look at a brave I, new I, world. <laughs> yeah, I get how this is a brave new world yeah. and probably dystopia. And it's super weird that humans rush towards it. Mm-hmm. And if this were an AI conversation, I would I would lean into that. But for now, mm-hmm. full caveat for all of the like propensity for dystopia, just setting that aside for this conversation, I do find it 
very interesting what will happen when that comes online from from an ever everybody perspective for sure but certainly from an incel perspective mm-hmm. like because that the status problem that you're talking about much like it was considered just so cringe to do online dating in the beginning and now it's just like what yeah. 70% of people meet online first yeah so it's like Eh, the fact that your girlfriend is AI, like it will be super gross for 10 years or whatever. And then it will just be like, wait, you're dating a real person. That's so weird. Yeah. Again, I understand the dystopia elements, but it's like when computers have human level intelligence and there is only, when you cut into them from a surgical perspective, they're different, but from the outside, like you Mm -hmm. don't notice, they will feel the same. They'll find a way to make them the same weight. Uh, of the same intellect, they'll effectively program them to be human-like, yes. but you'll be able to pick the traits that match you and then adjust them as you go. Like, mm-hmm. dude, for instance, if my wife could make minor adjustments to me, she would 100%. Like the fact yeah. that I, it drives me crazy when things are inefficient. So mm-hmm. I will leave things out because it's far more efficient for it to be sitting out. I, I know right where it is, right? <laughs> but it drives my wife crazy. She wants everything hidden. So she would adjust me, tweak, tweak, if she could. I would do the same to her. Like, the stop hiding things yes. for the love of God. And I know it sounds funny, but like that actually is a source of real tension in our marriage and it has been for 22 years. Love. So it's like, yes, I would make that go away, mm. as would she. And so- you get into these, people would just start making tweaks until mm. it was awesome. And here's one thing. You think you want to tweak all the friction away. And then you do that and you're like, actually, I need a little friction. Yeah. And so you tweak the friction back in and then you find, look, 7% friction, 93% get along is perfect. Yeah. And then it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, I tend, I tend to agree with you. Definitely agree with you on the leaving things out for easy access. Yeah. If they're hidden away, I forget that they're there. I, I had the exact same fights with girlfriends in my past for sure. Uh, so I'm with you on that one. Um, but yeah, definitely this idea of, but humans have also this biophilia, this kind of innate love of the natural. Correct. And one example I'll use to illustrate that is the resistance to artificial wombs and to in vitro meat. Uh, both of which are kind of peculiar because women in particular are resistant to the idea of an artificial womb. Mm. And that's crazy to me when I think of how many women uh, lose their lives in childbirth, how dangerous, how costly it is for women to engage in natural childbirth. They should be the ones banging the drum for artificial wombs, so emancipatory, but they're not because it strips them of some sort of essence. And I've ran the polls on my Twitter actually, and I'd love to see these studies done in, in greater depth. But it was women in particular that was very resistant to this idea of artificial wombs, a completely safe uh, technology, hypothetical mm. technology. Very peculiar to me, just this biophilia that you're in love with this uh, uh, natural. So maybe we'll put up more of a resistance to it than we think. The other one is in vitro meat. People find it kind of icky to eat lab meat that's cultivated in a Petri dish but they don't find it icky to actually kill and eat an animal. Mm. Remarkable. Just this, uh, do you think either of those will fall as they become more prevalent? I do. I do think they'll fall. But Which there is, one or both? I would say the in vitro meat will fall faster. Agreed. I mean, people are even already running towards like uh, artificial meats and stuff like that. But there is some people who still, or initially when they came on the market, people were like, would you really eat fake meat? And yes. It's like, yes. 
It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. I I personally have no pushback on that one. Mm -hmm. As long as they can figure out how you get the micronutrients of like uh, rich soil into it because th- mm. I my feeling is that will be non-trivial mm-hmm. and that if we're not, you, the meat that you eat is a product of what that meat ate. Mm-hmm. Even the same is true of vegetables. Like it's eating something from the soil mm-hmm. um, and the air presumably. So it's like, what mm-hmm. is it intaking? And mm-hmm. so we'd have to be thoughtful about that. But if we can solve that problem, the meat thing I don't have a problem with, mm-hmm. but the the womb thing that mm-hmm. one I get, like yeah. that one feels like for, oh, this actually isn't true. This is interesting. I'm, I'm peering into my own soul right now. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that I would have a problem with artificial insemination 
And then I thought, well, wait a second. Do you? <laughs> would I? Like yeah. if I knew I could pick, like mm-hmm. they they show me up on a screen, which by the way, this is going to happen. Yeah. They're going to be able to show you this exact sperm with this exact egg will yield this exact child. And so pick. And yeah. they give you like the option of 50 kids with different uh, height, uh, looks, intelligence, yeah. like personality traits, all of it. And... I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, embryo selection is just around the corner for sure. Um, but yeah, and you know, you mentioned about the artificial insemination, like you know, test tube babies. Now they're completely considered normal. Mm. You know, uh, I remember at the time the Catholic Church had big problems with them. They won't have a soul. They'll be all psychopathic and all this stuff. It's like, wow, what a ridiculous thing to think. Mm. They're obviously seem to be normal human beings. Um, Will the same be said about artificial womb babies yes. down the line? It could be that we just uh, embrace the technology pretty without much friction. But it's that idea that it strips women of this natural role. This yeah, natural I don't, I don't think we're going to get over the, the womb mm. one mm. fast. This is obviously my bias of speaking mm-hmm. here. But when I think about that one, it does feel like, because I, I reacted some kind of way when, God, would this have been in the 90s when women started going like, oh, men, what do we need men for? Like, we can mm-hmm. take artificial insemination. We don't need guys. And I was like, ooh, like, I don't like the way that feels. Yeah. And if there's an artificial womb. Yeah. Yeah. It's who, is it freeing women or is it? Uh, making them irrelevant. Making them redundant. It's a. Uh... Yeah, but this is the very evolutionary novel time we live in. While it's very emancipatory to free ourselves of the hostile forces of nature, it actually means we're not relying on each other in the ways we have for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. It's a a very strange time. It's a very strange time. Talk Mm -hmm. to me about how we rely on each other. Because one thing that I see happening in the dating market that makes me really sad, and as somebody who is just a huge fan of love, Mm If you look at the other sex as your adversary, you are already in trouble. Yes, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's my optimistic response to when I see this kind of discourse culture of very adversarial men versus women type thing. I get very annoyed at that Mm. because we are each other's best ally. But ultimately, I just laugh in the face of it because all those concerted efforts to get men and women to hate each other are pushing up against so many selection pressures throughout our ancestral uh, history that are causing men and women to be equipped to love each other. You know, we'll rebound. I've heard you say mm-hmm. this before. We'll rebound, mm-hmm. but there there is a trifecta of books that I think should be mandatory reading. I'm, and I mean this, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of everybody should do something, but this one, we mm-hmm. should teach these in school. And they are um, the Gulag Archipelago, okay. Mao, the Unknown Story, and the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Mm. And when you realize that we'll rebound, I'm with you there, mm-hmm. but that that when 100 million people are dying, that doesn't help. Mm. Like that is not like, oh, don't worry. Uh, 100 yeah. years from now, everybody's gonna be fine. Uh, right now though, people are dying by the millions mm-hmm. and I really don't wanna see this happen. And so I feel like, yes, there is all this evolutionary pressure of mm-hmm. like, no, 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 when you cooperate, things are better. And so there'll be all these sort of neurochemical yeah. cues that will eventually get somebody to say, hey guys, think we're approaching this the wrong way. Look mm-hmm. at this, this will feel a lot better. People try it out and they're like, yeah, this is better. Then those people grow up and they teach their kids, hey, do this. Mm-hmm. But that's a long, slow cycle. And in the interim, things can go very, 
very wrong. Yeah, and it's not a non-trivial harm, these concerted efforts to get men and women to hate each other and be adversarial, even if it doesn't have the mass effect, uh, if I'm, uh, you know... um, yeah, more optimistic about our evolved psychology being more powerful. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not nice to see and we should challenge it uh, in the cultural conversation mm. for sure. So how do we begin to challenge that? How do we get people to stop seeing each other as adversaries? I think uh, my friend Chris Williamson talks about it, this kind of idea of the third wave of the red pill kind of thing, this idea that we need to move towards a very accurate cross-sex mind-reading psychology. So to try and educate Uh, the sex is about how the other side sees it genuinely really grapple with that because you know we i think we kind of only pay lip service to that mission really of trying to see it as the other side sees it and one example i'll use uh, there to show a real failure of cross-sex mind reading is incels when they're asked or men in particular are asked is there any such thing as a female incel why is there no such Mm. thing as a female incel and incels would usually say well Most women can go out and get some sex or some love or some relationship if they want. It might not be the sex or love that they want, but they can get some. And for incels, or for men in particular, some is always better than none. But that's not the case for women. For women, sex or relationships is very costly, or potentially very costly, cost-inflicting. So it's not like, for men, sex is like pizza. There's good pizza and there's pizza. There's no bad pizza. Mm. But for women, there really is bad pizza because it's a costly thing and they'd rather go without. So incels are using their male typical psychology to try to empathize or not empathize with their female counterparts and say, oh no, you have some uh, rather than none, that's better. But that's only using male typical psychology. For women, that's not the case. So is there a female version of incel? It won't be tied to maybe mate selection, but what's the thing where they want it so badly and they can't have it? And to them, it's hope, cope, rope. Maybe. I don't think it'll be an exact analog, but there will be the case of so many women who say they're struggling to find. And I I know the term uh, is a, a bit of a grating one for many incels, but eligible men or men that they want to be with. Mm. So when you're left with the choice of either mate down or don't mate at all, that doesn't seem like a great luxury. Incels think that's a great luxury. They would say, I'd mate down in a minute. That would solve my problem. But that's not a a solution to the problem for women. So it amounts to the same thing. And when I'm asked about where is the female incel community, there is a growing femcel community of kind of similar to incels hanging out in online forums and all that stuff. And they're saying, my problem is that I can't get sexually selected. Yes, similar enough. But the more uh, analogous femcel situation is kind of hidden in plain sight. It's these mainstream media articles about women being unable to find eligible men. They're more likely the involuntary single, rather. Uh, it's... um. Not the exact same thing, but um, the difference is you have mainstream media support and sympathy for these women. And it's, oh, men are not economically attractive enough or not eligible enough for these women. There's no such kind of sympathy for the incel situation. Mm. Uh, So the female incel community is kind of hidden in plain sight. It's these women who can't find men to meet their standards. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Taking your own hypothesis, though, I'm wondering if that's the one. So you said that extreme incel behavior probably looks like suicidality. Mm -hmm. So they hate themselves. That's like their primary thing. It actually isn't misogyny. Their Mm -hmm. primary 
uh, I forget toxic language, I think is what you yes, call it. Yes, that's right. Is, is self-hatred. Yes. Okay, so what is the thing that makes women have a primary language of self-hatred? Is it, uh, I can't find eligible men? Is it, I'm unlovable? Is it, I'm not loved by my parents? I don't know. I'm trying to, because hmm. women, women are more likely, if I'm not mistaken, they're more likely to be suicidal, to mm-hmm. attempt. Yes. They're less likely to complete by a lot. Yes. But they're more likely to be suicidal. Yes, and more neurotic, just generally. Yeah. yeah. So is it that they just feel negative about any slight, and so it isn't specified to something like sex, and that just mm-hmm. is where men sort of hyper respond? Yeah. I mean, you could frame the incel problem as we could argue that there's too much of a hyperfixation on the sexual component. These are just lonely young men who've retreated from society more broadly. They mm. lack friendships, they lack uh, jobs, education, they're not engaging with society. So you're not going to find incels that are great at something. Very few, right? Mm. You, and you, I hear some incels screaming now, watching this, saying, no, everything is correct in my life. I, I have a great life. And that's true for a, a minority. But for the most part, they seem these very disenfranchised young men, like the hikikimori in Japan. Mm. Are, are you familiar with the I hikikimori? Yeah, most so, people won't be, so please tell. So the hikikimori, uh, if we look at Japan over the recent decades, uh, it describes a lost generation of young men who've just completely retreated uh, and barely even leave their leave their homes. And they just get food delivered, play video games all day, and don't engage with society. That could be a Do glimpse you know why into it happened to Japanese, the Japanese? I'm not sure exactly why, uh, but they're very technologically advanced, right? And uh, with a kind of online culture. So it might be a glimpse into the future there of the idea of men hanging out in online worlds all day 20 years ago would have seemed very, very strange to us now. It doesn't seem that strange now. You can very much imagine it. Um, So maybe Japan is just like a glimpse into the future there. Uh, With the hikikimori, and I haven't studied it too deeply, but I believe there's a massive absence of fathers in those homes. Uh, So Mm. just kind of uh, Jordan Peterson talks about it, about the devouring mother who just wants to keep their son safe and get them their food, don't need to leave the house, son. And the son is going to walk all over them in terms of dominating the mother from rules. Uh, I didn't understand that. Say that again. So if you have a father figure, I don't think there's many fathers who are going to tolerate their son staying inside, getting food delivered to the house, uh, getting their mom to clean up after them. They're going to say, get up and go out and do something. Mm. Uh, But if you have an absence of that, the son might feel able to kind of maybe push over the single mother who wants Mm. to keep him safe as the paramount value and safe and comfortable and get the food delivered, clean up after him, play your games. And it's very pacifying. And that's kind of what you see as typical with the Hikikomori. Yeah, this is why I really think the the friction between male and female temperaments is so necessary. Mm -hmm. So I read this book a long time ago called The Power of Myth by Joseph Mm -hmm. Campbell. And he talked about how, hey, I think a big problem in society is that there are no more rituals. Mm. And because there are no coming of age rituals, you get this interminable youth where there is no moment where you take the kid out into the woods, you kick his teeth in, Mm. you circumcise him with no anesthetic, Mm. uh, you make them kill a lion. I mean, there are some crazy coming of age rituals that have existed. And- when I read that, I was like, whoa, because that very much my journey was I grew up 
ultimately soft. My mm -hmm. dad just got frustrated when I would be weak, but he didn't know how to say, hey kid, you need to toughen up. Or he didn't know how to say it in a way that I could hear. He would just give up and, and go do something else. And what I needed was to be around people that just did not tolerate that. Mm -hmm. And so my wife certainly began that process and then getting in business was the market does not care. Unforgiving, yeah. And it's like, yeah. you either figure it out or you don't. And so in, in pursuit of getting good at that, I gave myself over to reality, I guess is the right way to say it. And so um, the idea of the devouring mother mm -hmm. who feeds into that, into that, into that is really played out in these rituals. And so in the book, The Power Myth, I think anyway, uh, I've read about this so many times, I can't remember yeah. which one. Let's say it was The Power Myth. Uh, he talked about how what would happen is the, the night or the day, whatever, whenever this ritual happened, the sun would be in with the women mm. and they would come and ritualistically tear him away from the mother who either performatively or for real is like, no, 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 don't take him. Wow. And so they would rip him away from the mother to be like, okay, that world is done. That door is closed. And then they would go do whatever. Uh, and the one mm. that my audience will have heard me say many times is what Nelson Mandela went through, which his book, Long Walk to Freedom, is absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And in it, he talks about his coming of age ritual. I think he was 14. And they get you and like three or four other boys uh, they sit you down buck naked. They have you in front of the whole village. Wow. They have you sit there, uh, legs spread, and uh, I don't know, shaman or whatever, comes with a really sharp rock, grabs your foreskin and just shoop, lops it off. And then you have to yell a mm. warrior's credo. I forget what it was he says in the book. Wow. And, and I just thought, yo, mm -hmm. like as terrifying as that is, having a moment like that mm -hmm. where you have to go through something where you are ritualistically removed from the world of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not a coincidence that they have you yell this warrior credo yeah. um, to shift you into you are now different. And, and I need to go back and reread this, but I'm pretty sure that then what they do is they cover your entire body in mud. Mm. And then as it dries that night or the next day, I can't remember, uh, a young woman comes in and washes it off your naked body. Mm. And I just thought, whoa, like it's so, like it's such a thing. Like you yeah. pass through this moment. And if I'm not conflating that, and it really is a young woman comes and wipes it off, there's really something that indoctrinates you into like that whole world. I don't know, man. Like mm -hmm. I find that really interesting. And, and as I try to think through the problem of societal context has changed, we've become hyper aware I don't like the way that hyper-awareness makes you cynical, mm. but I also like the way that we can refine some of these rituals. And now I'm sort of answering my own question from the very beginning of this, like how do we back off that precipice when we're so aware of this stuff? And mm -hmm. I know that there are guys out there now creating these groups where they do take boys on like these hard retreats and they talk to them fucking hard in a way they probably never yeah. been talked about. Like, stop fucking crying. I don't want to hear it. I know, trust me, comments freaking out, but I'm telling you, as a boy that needed to learn, mm -hmm. I was way in touch with my emotions. That was not the lesson I needed to learn. And so it was like, I had to also learn to have a gear of being tough as fuck. Mm -hmm. And like, you have to have that gear. If you don't have that gear, I don't care how in touch with your emotions are. Life is going to be brutal in a way it does not need to be brutal yeah. if you figure out the other gear. Now, my marriage is a result of me being in touch with my emotions, being highly articulate, understanding my insecurities, mm -hmm. all that, very useful. But if I didn't also have this other gear, yeah, no bueno.
That's so interesting to see and to hear about those kind of archetypal motifs come through with those rituals you described, like the devouring mother. It's even echoed in the way they do the ritual. It's so interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, the lack of ritual, at least whatever about uh, the character of the ritual itself, the the marker of having achieved a certain stage in life, there's a complete absence of that now. There's just a delayed adolescence and kind of a when do you do a certain thing? It's kind of, uh, and even like the mating market, the way it works, there's no clear cut blueprint. It's very atomized. There's no one helping you. You know, for most of our ancestral history, you would have had your friends or your family helping you mm. form your mateships. Now it's just you and the app, very isolating, very atomized. And uh, yeah, it's not, it, there's no ritual about it. There, do people even set each other up on dates anymore? I don't think that's mm. a done thing anymore. It's just very isolating. What do you think about arranged marriages? Uh, it's interesting when you look at them, uh, they have a, like a success rate of people who fall in love more uh, because the idea is that, well, when you didn't have that much choice and you weren't thinking, How, what's my way out? When you mm. think, well, I have no way out. It's kind of like you had described with your wife, the D word is not an option. That's really not an option in an arranged marriage. So they tend to make the best out of it. So that's probably what we're finding. Is there data that they're more successful? There's some data, I believe, that shows Whoa. they're more successful uh, because it's just that it, when you reduce the other options, it's like, we well, might as well make the most out of this. And I'm not going to second guess my husband's annoying habits of leaving everything out of, on the counter because this is my husband. Mm. And uh, that's it, you know, so... That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So this was this was something that my wife and I came to very early and I'm very grateful for it was when we got together, we said, okay, the experiment we're running is what does it look like when somebody shares a life forever? Mm -hmm. And there are gonna be certain constraints that we have to put on our relationship to make sure that works. Mm. And one of them is we can't, what we call let dust settle. So you can't just let something go that bothers you. Mm. You have to address it and you have to come up with rules of engagement. So around uh, me liking things to be efficient, her liking things to be tidy, we've had to come up with rules of engagement of how we navigate that thing. Mm. Also coming to understand the difference between uh, a collision and base assumptions, which is I think the world works like this, uh, and difference in values. I mm. think the world ought to work like this. Okay. And when you have a difference in base assumptions, it's like, oh, I never considered a different angle. I didn't even realize I had that base assumption. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm -hmm. Now I can adjust. And one of us is right about, you know, it, it, I had just never considered another thing. And we're moving from base assumption to value system, going from, well, this is how it is, but it's not necessarily how it ought to be. It mm -hmm. ought to be like this. And can we change it? And so realizing when you have a conflict of values, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And when you have a conflict of values, I understand your position. Mm. You understand my position. I can articulate your position so well that you will say the words, you understand my position yeah. perfectly mm -hmm. and vice versa. And I still think you're wrong. Yeah. And so now we have to have a rule of how we deal with that thing. But if you don't say there's no, and look, my wife and I have always said there, there are three things that we will not tolerate for a second, beating and cheating mm. and a loveless marriage. Okay. So you beat, you cheat, done. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if this becomes a loveless marriage, if we can't unwind that, then of course we would exit. Mm -hmm. So, but we're doing everything that we can. Like I promised my wife, I guarantee it. I will never cheat on you ever. Mm -hmm. I may break up with you. 
mm-hmm. but I'm never going to cheat on you because mm-hmm. that's in my control. But if I've become so unhappy or, you know, whatever, then yeah. I would address that first. Um, but if you don't put those confines, because as I really, again, just thinking through the initial question that we asked, like how, how do you back away from all this? I think you, you have to have confines. You have to have self-imposed limitations. And yes, I understand that some of the argument is like, oh my God, are you telling people what to do? Yes, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. I am telling you what to do. And the question, I'm all 10 fingers appointed to me. I'm telling myself what to yeah. do. Because why? I have a North Star and that North Star is very definable and it is human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to human flourish is through the recipe of fulfillment. And the recipe Mm -hmm. of fulfillment just has limitations. And I forget where I first heard this, but your goal makes demands. Mm -hmm. And once you decide my goal is human flourishing, it makes demands. And one of those demands, as far as I can see, is there are going to be limitations put on something somewhere, probably a lot of things. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier about this uh, the maybe the corrosive nature of the primary value for people being freedom and no nothing being imposed upon me. You seem like the type of guy that you and your wife and your relationship for the service of that higher goal, uh, you're happy to accept kind of um, impositions on yourself and like rules and uh, things like that. And that seems quite healthily integrated. And there seems to be a kind of a cultural resistance against that type of thing. And it's mm. like, no, nobody should control you except you. The individual, hyper-individualism is... Uh, I can actually, can like, close. I don't hackle at mm. nobody should be able to control you but you. Mm. Uh, at, at the edges, I am not a libertarian. I We need some government, but I think governments become very pathological. So you have to be, have a very big distrust for that. Uh, so I don't hackle at that statement mm-hmm. a lot. But what I think gets thrown out in the baby in the bathwater is that I think people think that means you shouldn't have constraints. Mm. I'm just saying you should be able to choose your constraints. Yes, and you seem to choose them, yeah. And you're, you in my estimation, should be choosing your constraints based on what is the outcome of the situation without these constraints. And that's where I feel like we've gotten into some weird politically correct quagmire where people don't want to talk about what is true. Mm -hmm. And that, and look, I asked my audience for a lot of grace on this. And and I guess in the macro, I get it because people still watch my content. If you read the comments, not always in the (laughs) micro. Um, But I need to be able to think through these topics and the way that we think, I mean, literally these conversations are my way of thinking through these problems. I get to say things out loud that could be horrendously terrible ideas, Mm -hmm. but if I can't say them out loud, I can't find the edges of where they work and where they stop working. Exactly. Yeah. And that's like your audience has to be kind of like a family and charitable to you in terms of, yeah, latitude to think things through out loud. Dicey tightrope. Family. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't need my audience to be a family. Mm -hmm. A, I just don't think that's realistic, Mm -hmm. but uh, what I do want is for them to recognize at a societal level, forget me as an individual, even yeah. forget themselves as an individual at the societal level. If you can't talk about ideas and work through them and mm-hmm. all collectively go, that's a terrible idea. Uh, and that's a great idea as evidenced by the result that we get, not what sounds good, mm-hmm. but actually yields the right result then we won't be able to make progress towards human flourishing as a society. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. But you kind of get that organically with your family members. They kind of give you that latitude to mm. talk. They don't forget everything they knew about you That's when you fair. say something wrong. It's like, oh, he said something wrong, but I know it's not exactly what he means. Mm. There's this very uncharitable kind of dynamic towards people now. The minute they make a slip up with saying something particularly online, it's like, gotcha. That's it. That's you forever and always. It's not. Yeah. The, we look at people in 
just isolation like that. How do you deal with that? Because you're somebody who's on a um, an academic track. Mm-hmm. The academy has become very uh, feminized and the feminine mode of fighting is reputation uh, dismantling. Mm-hmm. And so you're somebody out here popping off on a podcast with a guy that's saying some crazy shit. You might say some crazy shit. Uh, how do you think about that as an academic? Um, luckily, I haven't been burned by it so You're far. Uh, fingers crossed. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of lucky enough to have financial support that I don't need to kind of be so worried about, oh, uh, I have to get any academic job. I kind mm-hmm. of want an academic job where I'll feel happy and secure and uh, free to think and research the topics I want to research, talk about things the way I want to talk about them. I don't know if you heard, um, my supervisor, uh, he did an episode with Joe Rogan, um, and he said that this year was one of the first times in like a 30-year career where he went to the dean of the university to say, I want to be able to teach sex and gender and sexuality the way I know. Uh, I need to make sure I have your backing or I'm not going to teach it in case if there's any complaints, I need to make sure I have your backing before I do. And he got that guarantee. And that was the first time he had ever done anything like that. Wow. That's a very odd thing to for me to learn because he's someone who's an absolute legend in our field. Mm. And I'm like, if he needs to get those assurances, maybe I ought to be a bit more w- wary. But uh, yeah, I kind of only want to work in an ac- academic job that I would want, and I'd never want to be one in one that I'm going to be completely hamstrung and not able to think about the things I want to think about or talk about the things mm-hmm. I want to talk about. Man, long may that continue. And speaking of the pendulum swinging back, I do feel some momentum now in the opposite direction. Um, you know, for a long time, that was why I didn't even really want to formulate thoughts around this stuff because I, I didn't want to be incongruous. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to believe something privately that I was unwilling to say publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it just seemed so fucking dangerous. I was yeah. like, eh, I don't love that idea. And honestly, while I love doing the podcast, I love doing the podcast. My wife asked me the other, I'm, I'm trying to build the next Disney. Like mm. that's my identity. My identity is not as Tony Robbins or Joe Rogan. My identity is Walt Disney. Mm. Um, that is what I want to build. And so I've always been a little worried that I'll damage the brand mm. because the brand becomes... Uh, a visual representation of my thoughts and feelings, which may or may not work. We are very much a mission-driven company, Mm -hmm. which is um, I want to empower people to live by a set of ideas that will actually lead them to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I've always been a little bit worried about that, but I've, for better or worse, sort of thrown that to the wind. Anyway, my wife asked me if, um, if that side of the business were to take off, would I stop doing the podcast? And Mm -hmm. I was like, yes. Mm. I would. Um, so it's interesting. But anyway, I, for better or worse, I've decided that um, to think through these problems well myself, to be a useful conduit to society. And I think podcasts have really become this incredible mechanism by which the culture thinks through problems. Forget yeah. any one of us individually. The culture thinks through problems via podcasts yeah. where we can get, I mean, think about how weird this is that a doctoral student, uh, I get to bring him in and mm. like, okay, you're studying this thing. Like, tell me all about it. And then the world gets to hear yeah. you do that. It's crazy. And there is an appetite for people to watch long form conversations mm. just between two guys. Like that's pretty cool. Like who could have saw that coming? Yeah. You know, they talked about like HBO max, the, the public audience has an attention span. You got to keep it. 
who could have ever predicted you could sell out arenas with guys having a debate and things like that. It's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's great. It re-engaged a whole generation with intellectual life. It's, mm. it's brilliant. No, it's been cool. Yeah. And I'm uh, look, I'll give a shout out to Jordan Peterson, who I've had on the show a couple of times. We'd mm. love to have him back again. Uh, I don't want his life. I can't fathom how many slings and arrows yeah. he's taken. At one point he said that he was in the middle of like 10 lawsuits. I was just like, Jesus, man, like that would be exhausting at mm -hmm. a level that I just can't fathom. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, I heard you bring up free speech. Somebody like asked you for the closing question over like, what's a mm -hmm. thing that you would leave people? And you said free speech. Yeah. I was shocked by that. Mm. What, are, what are your thoughts on free speech? Yeah, it's just something that I think people don't appreciate as a master value enough. It's the only way mechanism through which you can kind of self-correct yourself as a society. I'd rather have uh, questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. Oh, uh, you need damn. To, who said that's that? Good. I don't remember. <laughs> but uh, that's it's good. A good one. But wow. that's, that's exactly the way I feel. But I think free speech as a value, like kind of people give lip service to it, but they really don't mean it. And mm. I think we really need to re-engage that uh, part of ourselves uh, like as a core value in the social fabric. It's a huge master value that needs to be uh, respected. I agree. Speaking of things you can't question, evolutionary psychology comes under attack a lot. I don't understand why. It seems so self-evident to me. Mm -hmm. um, why does it? What, what is people's beef with evolutionary psychology? Uh, I think a lot of that can be described with the naturalistic fallacy. So that's uh, where the belief that because some of our findings grapple with finding dark aspects of human nature, that what we're saying is natural is seen as to say that that's good. You're justifying it. Justifying it. And that's precisely the opposite. The only way you can overcome some of the dark aspects of your nature. So like Darwin talked about the hostile forces of nature, there's a lot of hostile forces of our own human nature that we need to overcome. And we do it all the time, like physical violence. We have instincts for those that we overcome all the time. But you need to be able to understand them. And uh, there's no point in burying your head in the sand. So I think that a lot of people have that criticism. Uh, I think also people don't are become increasingly resistant to sex differences because they see some as being demeaning to others. I, I don't really know why. I can't fully explain everything that's going on uh, in the full resistance to sex differences, but mm -hmm. there is this cultural drive to pretend that men and women are the same and treat them the same. But, do you uh, think they're pretending? A little bit. Or do bit. they really believe it? So it was very interesting. My supervisor wrote a book called When Men Behave Badly, mm. The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment and Assault. And in one of the chapters where he talks about sex differences, he tops the chapter with a quote from the intersectional feminist Kimberly Cremshaw and says, when you treat different things the same uh, and you get that's not a recipe for e equality. Uh, you need that's the same that's the same as oppression is treating uh, different things the exact same so if you treat men and women the exact same and pretend there are no differences between them that's actually oppressive uh, and often to women so one example i'll use is uh, the reasonable person standard uh, for sexual crimes so i mentioned earlier in the episode that men perceive sexual harassment uh, and stalking and crimes of this nature as far less harmful than women do. Mm. So when we have a legal system that relies on reasonable person standard, it very much matters whether that reasonable person is a reasonable woman or a reasonable man. Mm. So that's just a very kind of a thought experiment to think, whoa, actually sex differences could have a huge 
uh, function here. We maybe shouldn't consider things as the same. You know, we're not just completely exactly the same. Uh, so that's uh, an interesting way it's to look at it. really powerful. This is something that I come around to in my marriage all the time. Mm. And I'm telling my wife constantly, you're judging my behavior based on what it would mean if you did it. Mm. It isn't what it means when I do it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be really careful to your earlier point about theory of mind and like trying to get into the other person's mind and figure out, okay, what what does it mean when a guy does it or a girl does it? And so, yeah, I'll go back to this idea of boys and girls. Yeah, We're all prediction engines. Mm-hmm. And you are closer to the truth when you can more accurately predict the outcome of your behaviors. When I view my wife as thinking the way that I think, she confuses the life out of me. And I'm like, why are you responding like that? That doesn't make any sense. When I think of her as a more typical woman, then it's like, oh, I get it. Okay, from your frame of reference, you're gonna respond like that very predictably. Got it, understood. Mm -hmm. And that like, in just trying to alleviate the suffering of other people, I'm like, you will do yourself a great service if you come to understand at the individual level, there's always gonna be surprises, 100%. These are bell curves, the difference between Mm -hmm. men and women, bell curves, we have more in common than we have different. But if you don't understand where the bell curves begin to diverge, you will be very confused, especially on any metric where you're towards the end of the bell curve. So if you're towards the one end of the bell curve on on a trait, let's say sexual desire. Mm -hmm. So you're towards the high end of male sexual desire, just massive drive. And your significant other is on the low end of the female spectrum for sexual desire. Now it's like, she's so far lower than the lowest man that it's like, bro, yeah. You're, you're so much farther high than the highest woman. She's so much farther low than the lowest man. That That is, you better understand the differences. Yeah. Otherwise, you will take it personally, yeah. if nothing else. That's literally what our lab is focusing on researching now is this cross-sex theory of mind. Um, how accurate or inaccurate is each sex about these massive sexual psychology differences mm-hmm. in sexual desires, in uh, perception of the cost of sexual harm, things like that. And a more accurate cross-sex theory of mind is the first step to reducing sexual conflict because, uh, you know, there are so many examples. It's why men send dick pics and think because they would love to receive such a picture themselves, yeah. they think maybe a I woman wish, would like it. I, baby, if you're listening, <laughs> I would love it if you took pictures of your your lovely bits <laughs> and just sent them to me in a nonstop barrage. Yeah. Uh, There's a funny article of some BuzzFeed journalist actually tried to do this experiment. She said she was going to have revenge on all the men who send her dick pics and just send them pussy pics in return. Talk talk about a failure to cross-sex mind read. Exactly. Guys would be like, bring it on. Yes. But there are also some other dark examples of failures of cross-sex mind reading. So do you remember Brock Turner, the the swimmer, the the swimmer athlete that uh, raped this girl uh, behind a dumpster and two guys stopped him? And uh, his father said, oh, but he only, uh, why should he have to sacrifice his whole future? The whole thing only lasted about 20 seconds. Oh, God. And it's like, oh, wow, what a failure of cross-sex mind reading. There's other examples of a, a Texas governor, I believe, or some politician, where he said, if a woman is getting raped and she can't get out of it, she might as well just lay back and enjoy it. And all of these things Whoa. are like extreme Rad. examples of massive failures of cross-sex mind reading. That if you understood how bad that is for the woman, you would never be able... That's, that's bad for That's pretty man. bad, even like, for a man, right? Yeah, because if I'm yeah. getting raped, 
And the guy's like, well, you can't get out of it, bro. You might as well lay back. What the fuck are you talking about? Exactly, yeah. So these are extreme examples, but there is some level of this at play of the ineffability or inaccessibility of the other's exact sexual psychology. Mm. But we can educate ourselves about that and try to bridge that uh, gap.